Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. 
which means good night or good evening in the Paleo-Hebrew. I'm your host, your brother, your friend, as always, Tazapah, uh, and welcome, y'all, to another episode of ISBHPK Presents Bible Talk, man, here on Blog Talk Radio, uh, forward slash uh, Priest Mashaba, Mashaba Ban Judah, the water brother for hooking up the broadcast. I want to apologize to everybody, man, for coming in so late. Uh, with the show, I know y'all used to hear me in the morning, uh, but uh, schedules got uh, switched around the day, so had to do blog talk in the evening, man. So uh, welcome y'all to uh, the show on Thursday, which I the title FYI, which means for your information. Uh, I know y'all was probably looking forward to me doing um, the follow up on the class that I started. Gentiles, I believe I'm like maybe two parts in, I think, and I'm definitely, definitely going to finish that class, y'all, but in light of current events, oh, man, my goodness, I had to uh, deal with this particular topic because, matter of fact, let's do this first, y'all. Let me send shouts out to uh, our brother schools, ISBHPK, uh, every, every brother that falls up under the umbrella, every school. Um, send shouts out to the brothers here in San Antonio. Shouts out to the brothers in H Town, the brothers in VA, the brothers in Rochester, uh, the brothers in Canada, California, and shouts out to Kawa Cobb down in Guatemala. Also, shouts out to my brothers in uh, Albuquerque, ABQ, man. And uh, we're going to touch on uh, the state of New Mexico a little bit later. In the class, but I want to acknowledge those brothers. Send shouts out to shouts out to those brothers, and shouts out, man, to the twelve tribes scattered worldwide, man. We are Hebrew Israelites. We affiliate with all Hebrew Israelites, all of our brothers and sisters who uh, believe in keeping the commandments of the Most High and the principles of Christ, man. So. If you do both or either or, man, we can rock with you, man. We don't discriminate. We're not going to uh, separate ourselves uh, from the sheepfold because we are all indeed Israelites, the true people of the book, and we are getting saved out of this captivity collectively as a nation, as a people, not as an acronym, not as one camp, not as, as one assembly or individuals. We, are, we all came over here together. We all sinned. Together, we was all clowning, heathen, acting like heathen niggas, and we all going to get delivered out of this place together. Uh, and I pray and hope, well, I know it's going to be that, but I hope sooner than later that we'll be reformed. We'll be, be reformed from the heathen niggas uh, we've grown up to be and transform into righteous trees like the scriptures refer to us. You found the scripture yet? Speaking of which. Um, I found Isaiah 61 and 33, uh, excuse me. Hold that real quick. That might be the one I'm looking for. So, y'all, uh, if it's your first time tuning into the show, we do identify with being the people of the book, the Hebrew Israelites, Hebrew being our language, Israelite being our nationality, and we are definitely the people of the book through biblical con- uh, biblical texts, historical texts, and any other secular sources that you want to pull out. We can trace our roots all the way back to the book. And our forefathers being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So um, this is not like my Tuesday class, Talk Pot Tuesdays. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, in those classes, I would do about an hour of news, current events before we get into a topic. Uh, but um, FYI, for your information, it's a little different. I just go ahead and dive into the topic. And um, this week's topic is episode five, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. So what we're going to be dealing with, y'all, is the atomic bomb, man, the atomic bomb. So let's get Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. I'll read that. Somebody else give me Psalm chapter 118, verse 24. After this manner, therefore pray ye in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is the prayer we need to be sent up on the daily, y'all, so we can get the hell on. And we can truly uh, be the people that the Most High created us to be, the kings and queens and righteous people of this place, man. All right, give me Psalm chapter 118, verse 24, please. All right, read that for me. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So good or bad, happy or sad, the Most High brought you to it, the Most High bring you through it, and you'll come out better on the other side because of it, y'all. Trust me, I've done the research, man. Please believe me. All right, y'all, so the class is entitled uh, Episode 5, Behold His Soul, which is lifted up, in him is uh, not upright. And this is in light of the movie that is currently at the theater. I should have got that sound bite. Hated it. Oppenheimer, man. Oppenheimer. So Esau does what he always, he did what he always does, which was to make himself the hero and the villain all in the same Narrative Such a deceiver man And in the movie they focus more on His uh, Hearings that he had With some committee Trying to call him out on being a communist They focus more on that But in light of that They allude to him having a Newfound sense of Morality (laughs) After He had killed Innocents Thousands of innocents uh, Which is Demonic creation Which is known as the atom bomb So I was listening to NPR uh, What was it last week I think it was And they had um, They had a survivor on there From uh, Hiroshima Nakasaki I forget, get, forget which city she was from But she was giving her experience and her take on what had happened because she was there. And she was talking about how it was so much uh, what she called ash uh, everywhere, and it covered the people. And she referred to, she said, because she was buried underneath a lot of rubble. And she said when they got her out of the rubble, she was disoriented. 
and she had to get her bearings, but she came out and she said, and this I don't know if y'all knew this, but the bombing took place in the daytime, I believe in the morning. But she said you couldn't tell because the bomb turned the whole sky pitch black. So she thought it was nighttime. This is how horrific it was. And she talked about how the victims, they called them ghosts. Yeah, she didn't even have to get up out of here with that. They called them ghosts because that's what they looked like because they were disintegrating. I don't know if y'all ever seen any uh, footage from uh, when they dropped the atom bomb in in Japan, but I remember distinctly uh, one piece of footage they had was like uh, a child that was disintegrated, and you could see her shadow was still left on the wall. Well, they didn't show any of this in the movie. <laughs> they didn't show none of this. They didn't cover none of this in the movie, which is why I was like, man, I gotta do. I gotta do a class. I gotta put together a class on this to educate our people on what actually took place, because they had her. They interviewed her, and what was shocking about this lady was how she was so forgiving and so ready to look over uh, what had happened and what's still happening because of the radiation of her people, man. And she was talking about forgiving and this and that and trying to make the world aware of the dangers of nuclear warfare. And then the interviewer, Edomite, of course, stuck, snuck his little slick stuff in there like they always do, man, and asked to get her take on Russia. And what she thought about Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons against uh, Ukraine. First of all, I don't remember reading remember reading anything about Russia saying it was going to use nuclear weapons on Ukraine. I remember them denying it. I remember that, but that ain't the point. What gets me is here we are talking about what the U.S. did to these Japanese people. And this dude is the spin doctor and pulls out Russia, pulls Russia out his tail to get us to, oh, made you look in another direction. They go in and point a finger at Russia, but the United States is the only nation that has ever used a weapon of that mass destruction. They're the only nation that's ever, that's ever done it. But yet and still they want to police the world like they got to stop somebody else from doing it. The hypocrisy of Esau, man. Anyway, y'all, so that's what we're dealing with this evening. Uh, I just had to give y'all a a synopsis, I guess it is, or a preview of what we're going to be going over. Uh, Before we get into the class, because I don't want to lose anybody, because we're going to be doing a lot of jumping, man, and uh, breaking the Bible down extensively the way it was intended to be broke down. Uh, matter of fact, give me that and um, give me Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10. And Archive, give me Psalms 119 and verse 104. Isaiah 28 and 10. Isaiah 28 and 10. For precept must be upon precept, 
Now, we're reading out of the Bible, and the Bible is giving us very distinct instructions. Precept must be on precept. And we're going to keep this real simple. A precept is basically a scripture. You might hear brothers uh, on the street corner or in class teaching, like, give me the next precept. They use that terminology because of what the scriptures are, the texts that are in the Bible is referred to as precepts. So the most high is saying that. What? Read it again. For precepts must be upon precepts. So you have to put a precept with another precept, whether it's a precept from the Old Testament or a precept from the New Testament or from the Apocrypha. Read. Precept upon precept. And then he says it twice. If the Most High says anything twice, it's important. You should listen up. Just like when you were in school and the teacher was teaching and he repeated himself multiple times. Why? Because he wanted that to be etched into your brain to where you didn't forget it. The Most High is the same way. He wants this to be stapled into our minds. A precept must must be with another precept. Precept upon precept, read. Line upon line. And if you can't understand what a precept is, he dumbs it down for us. Line upon line, read. Line upon line. Read on. Here a little and there a little. Like I said, you might have to go to the Old Testament because you read the scripture in the New Testament, but you're trying to make sense out of it. What does it mean? You have to go back to the Old Testament to put that scripture together with the, t- the scripture you read in the New Testament. Now, since you've done that, now give me Isaiah, I mean, give me uh, Psalms. Hold that. Psalms chapter 119 and 109. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. So since you put a precept from the Old Testament or the New Testament with the with another precept in the Apocrypha, or you might have just put a couple precepts together in the New Testament from that one book, now you get what? Understanding. Now you get the understanding of it. You can't just sit up and read the Bible like it's a novel. You ain't going to get no understanding on it. You're going to be lost. And this is what a lot of people do, unfortunately. So read this again. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. It's only through the precepts you're going to get a complete understanding of the Bible. Read. Therefore, I hate every false way. And this is the only uh, way you're going to be able to identify what's a false way, what's not accurate, what's wrong. If you put the precepts together, now you can determine, okay, this is accurate, this is false. All right, I want us to get that understanding. Now let's go to Job chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 32 and verse 8. Yes, ma'am. Job 32 and 8. But there is a spirit in a, in man. What does the scripture say? There is a spirit in man. So each and every last human being on the face of the planet has a what in them? Spirit. A spirit. Read. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And we're finding out that the Most High inspires every spirit that is on the face of the planet. Now look at the word inspire for me. Give me a second, y'all, while we get this definition. You got it? I need y'all to keep them dictionaries handy because we're going to be back and forth with uh, definitions. To fill someone with the urge or ability to do or feel something. To do what? 
Slow down with the reading. To fill with the urge or ability to do or feel something. So the Most High fills the spirits that he made with the what? The urge or ability to do or feel something. So the Most High gives every spirit the urge or the ability to do something. So some spirits are going to be good at doing some things. Other spirits are going to be doing be good, be, be good at doing other things. You got any more for Inspire? Um, create, let's see, a feeling, especially a positive one in a person. No, I think the first one was good. So let's get Job uh, 32, verse 8 again. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So we find out that the Most High gave every human being a spirit. We're going to prove that in a second. But he not only did that, he inspired those spirits. Let's get Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9 to prove that the Most High created every spirit. Even the bad ones, y'all. Even the bad ones. Contrary to popular belief. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we have, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. And we gave them reverence. Now listen to what he's saying. We've had fathers of the flesh, meaning your biological father. And he says they've corrected us. So there's a biological father that we have. Read on. And we gave them reverence. And we gave them respect. Read. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits? To the who? Father of spirits. Who's the father of every spirit? It's the most high. I hope y'all getting this. But in then too, in this same precept, it lets us know that we have a biological father and we have what's known as a heavenly father. That's what the most high is referred to, a heavenly father. Is everybody seeing this? Is ready for that precept? And live with the rest of it. All right, now let's get uh Matthew chapter eighteen and verse thirty five. Everybody got it? All right, go for it. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. Read that again. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. This is Christ speaking. And what is Christ referring to the most I ask? Heavenly Father. His heavenly Father. Because we all know, well, we really don't all know this because religion has taught us something totally different, but Christ's biological father was Joseph. You can read Matthew, the first chapter. It gives the genealogy of Christ, letting you know that he was, in fact, a man. And he got here the same way everybody else got here, the same way we all got here, through intercourse, through being conceived in his mother's womb. But he's letting you know that he has a heavenly father. So his spirit belongs to who? The heavenly father, to the most high. Read it again. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you. If ye from your heart forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. 
So he's teaching righteousness according to his heavenly father, according to the spirit that his heavenly father put in him. All right, now let's get St. John chapter 8. Keep keep everything that we've been over so far in mind, y'all, as we read this, because I don't want y'all to get lost. So St. John chapter 8, I want you to start at verse 38, and let me see. Yeah, that's it. St. John chapter 8 and verse 38. I seek that which I have seen with my father. This is Christ once again speaking. He said, man, I speak that which I have seen with my father. What father is he referring to here? He's referring to the heavenly father, the most high, not Joseph, his biological father. Read. And ye do that which ye have seen with your father. And Christ is telling these Israelites, y'all do the stuff that y'all seen with y'all father. Letting us know what? <laughs> There's another spiritual father other than the most high. I hope y'all are seeing this. Now let's go to St. John chapter 17 and verse 12. St. John 17 and 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Now, this is a prayer that Christ was sending up for the disciples, and then later on this prayer extended to all the Israelites. So he said what? Read it again. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. So he's telling the Most High, praying to the Most High, when, when I was in the world, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your word, in your scriptures, the, the way you like things done. Read. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, mm-hmm. and none of them is lost. He said, none. I ain't lost not one of the disciples. But, read. But the son of perdition. One. <laughs> Which was who? Judas. Judas. This is who he's talking about. He, he called Judas the what? Son of perdition. The word perdition means hell. He called him the son of hell. Now, who do we who do we know to live in such a place, <laughs> to operate in such a space? It's the entity that we refer to as the devil or Satan. So this is Christ here calling Judas the son of the devil or Satan's seed, Satan's son. I hope everybody's seeing this. Read it again. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he he calls Judas Iscariot the son of Satan. I hope y'all seeing this. Let's get St. John chapter 13, verse 2. Now, I haven't done a lineage on Judas Iscariot, but I believe he was from the actually from the tribe of Judah. Uh Meaning he came out of the loins of a man named Judah And that man named Judah came out of the loins of a man named Israel So given his biological lineage But Christ is letting us know he's not talking about his biological lineage He's talking about his spiritual lineage And what spirit he had on him Alright, where you at? John chapter 13 verse 2 mm-hmm. And supper being ended 
the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. The, the devil did what? The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. No different than the Most High. Give me Job chapter 32 and verse 8 again. Say where you at. So the devil put instructions into Judas Iscariot's what? His mind. Into his mind. He gave him his instructions. He inspired him to make that move on Christ. 32 and 8. Who else who else inspires people to do things? Read. But there is a spirit in man, mm-hmm. and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So we find out that the Most High, <laughs> he inspires the spirit that he created. We also find out that Satan, he inspires spirits also. Read it again where he was at. John chapter 13 and verse 2. Mm-hmm. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So here he is, the devil or the deceiver or Satan, giving Judas his instructions, inspiring him. Now let's go to St. John chapter 8. And start at verse 39. They answered and said unto him. Now, we read this earlier. Matter of fact, start at verse 38. Let's read it in context. I speak that which I have seen with my father. Christ, once again, referring to his heavenly father, not his biological father, Joseph, read. And ye do that which ye have seen with your father. (laughs) So he's letting them know that they got a totally different father, a totally different spirit in them that he has in him. He's like, hey, my spirit is from the heavenly father, but y'all's spirit is from somewhere else. Read. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Now listen to what they're saying. Abraham, Abraham, sorry, a physical being. This is their lineage because these were Israelites he was speaking to that came from the three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And this is what they're talking about. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father, their biological father. But listen, read. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the work of Abraham. Now, of course they're Abraham's children because they're Israelites. <laughs> but that ain't what he's saying. He's saying if you would have had the same if you would have the same spirit that your father Abraham had in you, then you would do his works. And who did who gives all spirits? The most high. Who was the most high to Abraham? His heavenly father. You know? But now ye seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. So he's like, man, I don't roll like Abraham, read. Ye do the deeds of your father. Now, listen to what he's saying. You do, but he just told them that they don't do the deeds of Abraham. So how is he, why is he coming back and saying, you do the deeds of your daddy? <laughs> it's letting you know he's not talking about biological lineage. He's talking about spiritually. Read. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, 
even God. Oh, so they finally caught on. <laughs> now, fornication, they're talking about a spiritual fornication. That's why they said we only have one God. Because if you go and worship other deities, then that's a spiritual fornication. You're cheating on the most high. You're committing adultery against the most high. So they finally put the pieces together and say, oh, this is what he's talking about. This is what he owns. He ain't talking about our physical father, Abraham. He's talking about the most high ain't our father. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father. If you did have the spirit of the most high in you, read. Ye would love me. <laughs> no doubt, read. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Mm-hmm. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So he said, the most high sent me. I'm his son. Read. Why do ye not understand my speech? <laughs> Christ like, y'all really don't understand what I'm trying to tell y'all. Read. Even because ye cannot hear my word. Read. Ye are of your father, the devil. What did he say? Ye are of your father, the devil. So who is Christ saying they have, or their spiritual father was? The devil. The devil. Like, no, the spirit y'all got on y'all is from the devil. It's from Satan, Shatan. Read. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, listen. These are the characteristics of the devil. Giving us real distinct context clues that we got to put together. Read that part again. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So he said that these particular brothers he was talking to, their daddy is the devil. And it said that the devil, he was a murderer. That's one characteristic. From the beginning, and it also said he was a liar. Context clues, y'all. Let's get First John chapter three and, first, and verse twelve to find out who he's talking about, and we're definitely going to get to the Old Testament. Let's just go and come back. Uh, hold that. Oh yeah. First John chapter three and verse twelve. Not as Cain, I'm sorry, marvel not, my brethren, if the word, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Mm -hmm. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Because we love each other, read. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So if you don't love your brother, you abide in death, read. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Is a what? A murderer. Read. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Mm-hmm. Hereby perceive we the love of the Most High, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hold on. Where are you at? I'm in First John chapter 3, going to 17. Did you read over it? Read it again. First John chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Yep. 12. Okay, sorry. So not as Cain. Not as who? Not as Cain. Not as Cain. Because that's who Christ is talking about in uh, what we just read in St. John chapter 8. Cain did what? Read. 
who was of that wicked one? Cain was of the who? The wicked one. Cain was the seed of who? The wicked one. Cain was the son of who? The wicked one. And who is the wicked one, y'all? The devil. It's the devil. Read it again. Not as Cain, who was that, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother is righteous. So that's why he killed him, because Cain had the spirit of the devil or Satan in him, and Abel had the spirit of who in him? The spirit of the Most High. You know that because it said he was righteous. Now let's go to the crime scene. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, y'all. And give me verse 1, and then we're going to jump. Genesis 4 and 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So here it is. Eve is conceiving. And who's the baby daddy? Adam. Adam's the baby daddy. But I thought we just read, John said that Cain was from the wicked one. But here we see that Cain came out of the loins of Adam. So what John was talking about was not talking about Cain's biological daddy. He was talking about Cain's spiritual daddy. All right? I want us to understand this. Now let's jump to verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So here it is. And remember what Christ told those Israelites, you of your father the devil, but he was a murderer from the beginning. So this is who he was talking about. He was talking about Cain. Was that the world's very first murderer? And he said, you are your father, the devil. So he's letting them know that they got that same spirit on them that Cain had on him. Is everybody seeing this? Mm-hmm. All right, read it on. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. No, listen to what he said. I don't know where he is. This is a bald-faced what? Yeah. It was a lie, but remember the, the characteristics that Christ gave us in St. John chapter 8, verse 44. He said, you are the father of the devil. He was a, a, a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So this is what he's talking about. Read it again. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? So he not only lied to the most high, he got sassy with him also. Read, let's prove lie, read. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. He bust him out of his lie. He told him that he knew that he was lying. Now, jump back to St. John chapter 8, verse 44. Let's read it again. But now we're going to read it with some understanding. St. John chapter 8. And verse 44, mm-hmm. ye are of your father the devil, mm-hmm. and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, listen to what Yahweh what Christ is saying. You're the spiritual seeds of Satan, and you're going to do 
whatever he did. Because remember what Christ said, I learned what I learned with my father. So it's only natural that whoever Satan's kids are, they're going to learn what Satan does. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. So he's the father of lies, he's the father of murder. Hope everybody's seeing that. But this is a spirit. All right? I want us to understand this. And we already we already established that the Most High inspires every spirit, and we also uh, established that Satan also inspires spirits. I want us to understand this before we move on. Now, Hasbaz got an article. Uh, tell me where you're reading from. From Wikipedia.org. World War II. Mm-hmm. The Second World War and World War II redirect here. World War II, or the Second World War, often abbreviated as WW2, was a global conflict that lasted from 1939 to 1945. So I had to get this because a lot of people don't even understand uh, what the movie Oppenheimer is about or the, the backstory uh, of the movie or any of the, anything of that nature. So I just wanted to bring this out, but keep reading. The majority of the world's countries, including all the great powers, fought as part of two opposing military alliances, the Allies and the Axis. Many participants threw their economic, industrial, and scientific capabilities behind this total war. So you see how the whole world was literally at war. You see how it it mentions the scientists and all these other people. Mm -hmm. They threw their efforts in to help because that's what happens when a country is at war. Real. Blurring the distinction between civilian and military resources. Three. Aircraft played a major role, enabling the strategic bombing of population centers and the delivery of the only two nuclear weapons ever used in war. World War II was by far the deadliest conflict in history, resulting in an estimated 70 to 80 million fatalities, mostly among... How many? 70 to 85 million fatalities. I shortchanged it. I said thousands. It was millions of people that lost their lives. Read on. Mostly among civilians. All right. Now jump down to where it says Japan. And I hope y'all, I hope y'all got that. It says mostly. So mostly it was civilians that died in that war. And we'll get to why it says this. Read that. Japan, which aimed to dominate Asia and the Pacific, was at war with the Republic of China by 1937. So you might ask yourself, okay, what the hell was Japan? What did they have to do with the war? So they were trying to take over the Pacific region. Uh, they, matter of fact, yeah, they took control over Korea and um, who else did they? A couple of other uh, countries that are in that region. But at the time, they were at war with China. And you remember, y'all ever seen that movie, uh, It Man? Go back and watch that movie because I think it's It Man 2. It talks about World War II when uh, Japan invaded China. And I used to scratch my head like, man, how does little bitty island uh, go in and um, occupy big-ass China? I used to wonder why. Well, they have backing, the Chinese have backing from the British. Because remember, 
the British, and I covered this in, in the previous class, the British had the uh, Chinese strung out on opium for centuries. Go back and check that class out or do your own research. And I'm talking about the opium wars. So they basically control China. But they're the, they're the ones that uh, uh, was backing China against uh, Japan in the first place. You mean back in Japan? Okay. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, it was back in Japan. My bad. Marino? In December 1941, Japan attacked American and British territories with near simultaneous offenses against, excuse me, offenses against Southeast Asia and the Central Pacific, including an attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, which resulted in the United States and the United Kingdom declaring war against Japan. I got to do more research on this, but I, I heard that uh, Pearl Harbor was basically like a 9-11 joint, meaning it was a setup. The U.S orchestrated the whole thing. They knew it was going to happen. They allowed it to happen to give reason for them to enter the war. Just like September 11, 9-11. The reason it happened is because they wanted to go over there and, and get them, get the oil and get the poppy, the poppy uh, fields to push the, uh, the opium epidemic or what they called it. The, um, the pharmaceutical industry with all the uh, medicines that they was pushing. Yeah, the opioid. Yeah, the opioid epidemic, yeah. But anyway, that's what they did. The European Axis powers declared war on the United States in solidarity. Japan soon captured much of the Western Pacific, but its advances were halted in 1942 after losing the critical battle of Midway. Later, Germany and Italy were defeated in North Africa and at Stalingrad in the Soviet Union. Right. And you know, I get a chance, man. Oliver Stone did a documentary on Netflix. I think it's called, um, what is the name of that documentary? History of America. That's the name of it. It's a great documentary. It's long. I think it's like maybe four or five parts where he goes, uh, really deep into uh, the events that we're reading about. Read on. Key setbacks in 1943, including a series of German defeats on the Eastern Front, the Allied invasions of Sicily and the Italian mainland, and Allied offenses in the Pacific cost the Axis powers their initiative and forced them into strategic retreat on all fronts. Yeah, keep reading. In 1944, the Western Allies invaded German-occupied while the Soviet Union regained its territorial losses and pushed Germany and its allies back. During 1944 and 1945, Japan suffered reversals in mainland Asia while while the Allies crippled the Japanese Navy and captured key Western Pacific islands. The war in Europe concluded with the liberation of German-occupied territories and the invasion of Germany by the Western Allies and the Soviet Union, culminating in the fall of Berlin to Soviet troops, Hitler's suicide, and the German unconditional surrender on the 8th of May, 1945. So Germany, Germany surrendered. Hitler, they say, went into his bunker, committed suicide, 
But this is what happened also during that same time, Read. Following the refusal of Japan to surrender on the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Now listen to what they're saying. They said the refusal of Japan to surrender. I want y'all to remember this. So that they got this wrote in all kind of history books, and this is the story that they stick to all the time. Read. Issued on July 26, 1945, the United States dropped the atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima on August the 6th and Nagasaki on August the 9th. Faced with an imminent invasion of Japanese of the Japanese archipelago, the possibility of additional atomic bombings and the Soviet Union's declared entry into the war against Japan on the eve of invading Manchuria, Japan announced on August 10th its intention to surrender, signing a surrender document on September the 2nd, 1945. All right, so that's their official story, that this is when Japan surrendered, all right? Now, we're going to go to another article. Uh, let me see. Yep, that's the one right there. Read, tell them where you're reading from and read the headlines. Now, I want y'all to trip off this because we already read the account that Wikipedia gave, and you can look in uh, history books and tell you the same thing, that this is when the Japanese surrendered. And they'll use that. They'll say that the Japanese uh, were reluctant to surrender, and that's why they had to drop those atomic weapons. Now listen to this. From HNN.US, History News Network. The bomb was not necessary by John J. McLaughlin. It's, he said the bomb was not necessary. That's the title of his essay. Read. With the 65th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb almost upon us, there is undoubtedly going to be a flood of commentary on the wisdom of its use by the United States during World War II. The justified scolding of Charles Pellegrino and his, and his, the last train from Hiroshima and Nagasaki is likely only the opening salvo. Venturing into the arena of discussing the wisdom of the use of the atomic bomb is fraught with danger. It is somewhat akin to asking for the creation of an impartial panel to rationally discuss the issue of abortion, immigration reform, or the merits on the Obama health plan. So what he's basically saying is that this is a difficult topic to discuss. He's going to get into why he's saying this. Read. Virtually overlooked in the often heated debate is the question of whether the use of the bomb was justified from a strategic viewpoint. Because they covered, they tried to cover this in the movie. (laughs) There's a scene in the movie where uh, Oppenheimer gets invited to the White House to meet Truman, and he's there with some other dude. I forget the dude's name, his advisor or something. And he comes in, and uh, Oppenheimer's like, hey, man, look, uh, we used the bomb. Uh, we shouldn't have used it. Uh, but I fear that um, other countries will get it, and we're going to basically kill ourselves is basically what he was saying. And Truman is listening to him, and Truman's in there gloating and all that. And uh, Oppenheimer said he, he said he wants to apologize to the world for what he did and this and that. And uh, Truman looked at him, and he basically called him soft. I forgot the exact word he, words he used. He, he called him something like crybaby. Or yeah, he called him a crybaby. 
He said, get this crybaby out of my office <laughs> and stop talking to him. <laughs> but I was saying this, man, because this is what the public was talking about back then, whether or not America should have dropped those bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And like I said, they created this narrative that, oh, boy, had uh, he felt grieved by this and all this other nonsense. But we're going to get to the real deal. Read. In other words, could we have induced Japan to surrender without the use of the bomb? This writer says yes. For anyone He said what? This writer says yes. He said yes. That they, the U.S. could have got the Japanese to surrender without using the atomic bomb. Read. For anyone looking for a recent accumulation of articles, both pro and con, a useful starting point would be the 2005 essay by J. Samuel Walker in that April's diplomatic history. Clearly, the issue of the bomb is still an important story and will be with us for some time. Walker references a 1999 poll by Museum, a museum of the news news media of 67 American journalists who ranked the atomic bombing of Japan in 1945 at the top of all news stories of the 20th century. At the top of all news stories from the 20th century. This is how significant the bombing was. Read. It would not be surprising if the story had the same rank at the end of this century. Walker, like almost all the others who venture into this arena, concentrates on the ethics and morality of President Truman's decision to utilize the bomb. Whether it was necessary to win the war is not discussed. Walter Trohan, porter for the Chicago Tribune, with impeccable credentials for integrity and accuracy, reported that two days before President Roosevelt left, for the Yalta conference with Churchill. Now listen to this. He says, this reporter wrote this article. He said, two days before Roosevelt left to do a conference with uh, Churchill and uh, Stalin, two days before he left for this conference, this happened. Read. With Churchill and Stalin in early February 1945, he was shown a 40-page memorandum Drafted by General MacArthur. Now, now, this happened in February of 45. Now, remember when they said that the Japanese officially surrendered? It was in September of 1945. But this letter, they got way back in February. And this is when Roosevelt was still in office. Read. He was shown a 40-page memorandum drafted by General MacArthur outlining a Japanese offer for surrender. A what? Japanese offer for surrender. It was 40 pages. The Japanese was trying to surrender way back in February, not in August, after they dropped the bomb. There was no need for them to drop the bomb. Read the part again. one more yeah. Walter Trohan, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune with impeccable credentials for integrity and accuracy, reported that two days before President Roosevelt left for the Yalta Conference with Churchill and Stalin in early February 1945, 
he was shown a 40-page memorandum drafted by General MacArthur outlining a Japanese offer for surrender almost identical with the terms subsequently concluded by his successor, President Truman. So he's saying that the surrender that the Japanese people wanted to do way back in February of 1945 was almost identical to the one that they ended up signing the same year in September. Read. The single difference was the Japanese insistence on retention of the emperor, which was not acceptable to the American strategist at the time. Once again, y'all, check out Oliver Stone's documentary out. He says the exact same thing. Though it was ultimately allowed in the final peace terms, Trohan relates that he was given a copy of this communication by Admiral Leahy, who swore him to secrecy with the pledge not to release the story until the war was over. So this Admiral leaked it because he feared they was going to bury it, but he made this journalist promise not to come out with the story till after the war. You see, you see who we're dealing with, y'all? Do you see the deceitfulness in these people? Do you see the evil in these particular people? Read on. Trohan honored his pledge and reported his story in the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Times-Herald on August 19, 1945. According to historian Anthony Kubik, Roosevelt, in the presence of witnesses, read the memorandum and dismissed it with a curt, MacArthur is our greatest general and our poorest politician. said MacArthur dismissed it. I'm sorry, Roosevelt dismissed it. And he said, what about the great General MacArthur? MacArthur is our greatest general and our poorest politician. So they were playing politics with people's lives. Does this sound familiar? How about George Bush and weapons of mass distraction? Read on. Specifically, the terms of the Japanese peace offers of late January 1945 were as follows. One, full surrender of the Japanese forces, air, land, and sea, at home and in all occupied countries. Two, surrender of all arms and ammunition. Three, agreement of the Japanese to to occupation of their homeland and island possessions. Relinquishment of Manchuria, Korea, and Formosa. Five, regulation of Japanese industry. Now, y'all can go back and do y'all research. I was going to dabble into this, but I wanted to stick to the, to the point. But after World War II, because of the takeover of these islands that uh, Japanese used to occupy, like Korea, this is what led to the Korean War. This is one of the things that led to the Korean War. And then the war that followed after that, the Vietnam War. Read on. Six. Surrender of designated war criminals for trial. Seven, release of all prisoners. Other than retention of the emperor, these terms were identical to the final surrender terms. Harry Elmer Barnes, in his essay, Hiroshima, Assault on a Beaten Foe. So this is another journalist. This uh, Harry uh, Elmer Barnes, 
and I did some research on him. They they labeled him as anti-Semitic because this is the same cat that said that <laughs> the Holocaust never happened. And I gotta look. I gotta. I gotta dig into that a little bit more. But they caught. They labeled him anti-Semitic. Read on. Published in the May 10th, 1958 issue of the National Review, tells the same story. Barnes said that the Trohan article was never challenged by the White House or the State Department and says that after MacArthur returned from Korea in 1951, his neighbor in the Waldorf, Waldorf Towers, former President Hoover, took the Trohan article to General MacArthur and the latter confirmed. No, hold on. So what's going on here, y'all, is this cat, uh, Harry Elmer Barnes, he had the same account that we just read that this journalist had about the the Japanese people ready to surrender way back in February of 45. He had the exact same account. So he's talking about how this cat took an article to somebody, one of his neighbors, and what happened? And says that after MacArthur returned from Korea in 1951, his neighbor in the Waldorf Towers, former President Hoover, took the Trohan article to General MacArthur. Oh, his neighbor, uh, Hoover. Hoover. Uh, what was his first name? Um, I think it was like J. Edgar. No, that's that's the FBI cat. Oh. Um, Herbert, Herbert Hoover. That's what he's talking about. So he, he was his neighbor. He took this article to him. Read. Took the Trohan article to General MacArthur, and the latter confirmed its accuracy in every detail. MacArthur confirmed that it was true that the Japanese did surrender. Read. The Trohan story was ignored by other news media and almost immediately dropped off the public radar. Read. Admiral Ellis M. Zacharias of the Office of Naval Intelligence in his book, Secret Missions, tells how naval intelligence learned of the desperate condition of the Japanese and their real desire to conclude a peace. The desperate what? Their real desire to com- conclude a peace. It says the desperate the- condition of the Japanese and their real desire to conclude a peace. So they've been had one to, to surrender. Read. There were other leaks, some coming through Russians and the Chinese. The, the Russians knew that the Japanese wanted to surrender? The Chinese knew they wanted to surrender, read. There were other, excuse me, but all this information made no impression on Roosevelt or Truman, and they gave it no more importance than the MacArthur Memorandum. They continued to prepare for a land assault on the home islands that was obviated only by the dropping of the bomb and the Japanese surrender on August 14, 1945. Where you at? Let me see. We ain't going to read all of it. Matter of fact, let's get this paragraph right here. That's important right there. The real significance of this tragic error of judgment of Roosevelt and Truman is that in addition to the needless loss of life of innocent civilians on the Japanese homeland, two of the most vicious and costly battles of the Pacific Iwo Jima and Okinawa could have been avoided. In addition, the bribing of the Soviet Union to enter the war 
allowed them to enter Manchuria, strip that area of close to a billion dollars of industrial equipment. Of what? Industrial equipment. Y'all see how it was all about money, all about power? Read. And capture enough Japanese arms and ammunition to supply 10 divisions equipment, which they then turned over to Mao, thus contributing substantially to the defeat of the Kuomintang. The loss of China had other tragic consequences, namely the Korean and Vietnam Wars. All right. Now let's get uh, this other article here. blog.nuclearsecrecy.com Did the Japanese offer to surrender before Hiroshima? Part 2. Now, always try to have at least three sources, y'all. We've got about two. This is the third source saying the same thing. Read. By Alex Wellerstein, published May 6, 2022. Did the Japanese offer to surrender before the atomic bombs were dropped in August 1945? In my first post earlier this week, I gave what we might call the standard diplomatic history answer. No, they didn't. There were peace feelers to the Soviet Union from an important minority of the Japanese government, which is quite interesting and complicates the overly simple picture of Japanese fanaticism that is often told about their refusal to surrender. He said the fanaticism? Fantasy And they often tell the story About how they refuse to surrender He said that is fantasy Read But they don't constitute in any Meaningful sense A real offer to surrender And they were certainly not There were certainly not An offer of unconditional surrender But what if It wasn't the whole story What if the Japanese did offer up a full binding terms of surrender to the U.S. directly, and those terms were exactly what the U.S. ended up settling on with Japan after the war? Mm -hmm. I bring this up because my attention was not long ago directed to an article that came out recently in the respectable Asia-Pacific Journal that makes the argument that Japan was indeed ready to surrender. Y'all hear this? They were ready to surrender. Read. Same article, though. Most of it, very much the standard revisionist take on the end of the war with a strong reliance on the post-war critiques of the atom bomb by high-ranking military figures and a discussion of internal debate about whether unconditional surrender was a good idea or not. Overall, I didn't find it to contain much new, and the argument is still not compelling. Mm -hmm. But one part stuck out to me as something I wasn't familiar with from the normal diplomatic historical literature in a footnote. So this dude was leaning towards the side of, it's all hearsay, I don't think they really surrendered, until he ran across this particular article. Walter Trohan, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, reported that two days before 
President Roosevelt left for the Yalta Conference with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin in early February 1945, he was shown a 40-page memorandum drafted by General MacArthur outlining a Japanese offer for surrender. No, he read the same article. He read the exact same one that we just read off another website. So, and I'm bringing this out to show how this article was in, in circulation. Everybody read this. It, it was not a secret. Read. Almost identical with the terms later concluded by President Truman. Trohan related that he was given a copy of this communication by Admiral William Leahy, who swore him to secrecy with the pledge not to release the story until the war was over. Trohan honored his pledge and reported his story in the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Times Herald on August 19, 1945. So we just read the exact same thing. Now let's get another one. We read this one already, right? Um, yeah, no, we didn't read this one. Read this one. The A-bomb, okay, from RiverdalePress.com. The A-bomb was unnecessary. It was what? Unnecessary. Another source saying the exact same thing. Read. Japanese peace feelers had been sent out as early as September 1944, and China's Chiang Kai-shek had been approached regarding surrender possibilities in December 1944. The real effort to end the war began in the spring of 1945. This effort stressed the role of the Soviet Union. In mid-April 1945, the U.S. Joint Intelligence Committee reported that Japanese leaders were looking for a way to modify the surrender terms to end the war. Wait a minute. Can you read that part again? In mid-April, 1945. April. Now, remember, the article we read said that Roosevelt knew about the Japanese trying to surrender way back in February. So he let, he let what, a month pass, two months pass? And it says that the U.S. who? The U.S. Joint Intelligence Committee. The Intelligence Community, uh, Committee. They knew about this also. Read reported that Japanese leaders were looking for a way to modify the surrender terms to end the war. The State Department was convinced the emperor was actively seeking a way to stop the fighting. It was only after the war that the American public learned about Japan's efforts to bring the conflict to an end. It was only after the war that everybody learned that they wanted to surrender months before they even got them damn bombs dropped on. Bree? Chicago Tribune reporter Walter Trohan, for example. <laughs> this cat again. They even named a particle. Come on, man. Bree? For example, <clears throat> was obliged by wartime censorship to withhold for seven months one of the most important stories of the war. It was finally published on the Sunday following the VJ Day, August 19, 1945, on the front pages of both the Tribune and the Washington Times-Herald. 
Trohan's article revealed that two days prior to Roosevelt's departure for Yalta, the president received a crucial 40-page memorandum from General Douglas MacArthur outlining five separate surrender overtures from highly placed Japanese officials offering surrender terms which were identical to the ones dictated by the Allies to the Japanese in August. I'm not trying to fool y'all. Hasdai is not reading the same article, y'all. These are like three, four different articles all saying the exact same thing. All right, so that's one side of it, talking about the Japanese people. Yeah, it's a tragedy, but I was, I'm more concerned with our people. Read this one right here. From sciencehistory.org, Distillations Magazine. In the shadow of Oppenheimer, how popular narratives of the atomic age obscure the bomb's first victim. Reported July 16, 2023. According to most accounts, the desert was uninhabited. The sor- so it says, according to most accounts, the desert was uninhabited. And then they even try to say that mess in the movie. Nobody lives out here. Just a, a couple of uh, farmers that we had to resettle and pay off or some crap they said. Read. The stories will tell you that when the first atomic bomb was detonated on July 16, 1945, hardly anyone lived nearby. And this is when they tested it. And this test is known as the Trinity the Trinity Project is when they actually tested the bomb out in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Read. A 2015 PBS documentary about the test, codenamed Trinity, begins here, miles and miles from anywhere. And this is how you can see how these people are so demonic. I mean, granted, the Trinity is some BS anyway. But they put a, a, re, a religious name to it, something that, that people, uh, they hear the word Trinity and they automatically, sadly to say, automatically think of what? The Bible, right? The Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Ghost. That nonsense. But this is the name that he gave to this project. Straight blasphemy, man. Real. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning history, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, Richard Rose writes of the Trinity test, a bomb exploded in the desert, damages not much besides sand and cactus and the purity of the air. And the biography, American Prometheus, another Pulitzer Prize winner on which this summer's $100 million blockbuster Oppenheimer is based, depicts physicist Robert Oppenheimer roaming New Mexico in 1944, searching suitably isolated stretch of wilderness where the bomb could be safely tested. And yet, a few sentences later, the writers of American Prometheus, Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin, stumble into a contradiction. (laughs) Upon choosing a location in southern New Mexico, the Army staked out an area 18 by 24 miles in size, evicted a few ranchers by eminent domain, and began building bunkers from which to obscure the first explosion 
of an atomic bomb. So he said they contradicted themselves in the same uh, article or same narrative that they wrote. They said there wasn't nobody out there, but then they talk about how they re- had to relocate people. Mm-hmm. And this is talked about also in the movie. And I don't know if y'all knew him, but they actually went out. They built a whole city. Read. It's those evictions that make the choice of Trinity's location so haunting. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project knew from the start that this place was not all that isolated Mm -hmm. and was far from uninhabited. There were, in fact, dozens of families within 20 miles. There were what? Dozens of families within 20 miles, largely poor families, of ranchers and farmers, many Hispanic and indigenous. Many what? Hispanic and indigenous. Our people, the so-called Mexicans, so-called Indians, were living out there. It says 20 miles away. There's nothing. Read. Who unwittingly went about their daily lives in the first fallout of the atomic age. So they out there testing the bomb, and they just living life. They doing what they normally do. This is a regular day for them. Read. Now those who were infants and children downwind of the detonation of the gadget, a code name for the plutonium bomb used in the Trinity test, are nearing the end of a decades-long battle to be recognized and compensated for generations of illness they trace to exposure from radioactive fallout. Right, because that article um, or the segment I was listening to on NPR, they had a sister come on, and she was saying the exact same thing. Matter of fact, she's mentioned in this article here, but they ain't got paid nothing except no attention. Read. Two months before the gadget exploded, scientists and soldiers gathered at the Trinity site to hold what they called a rehearsal at dawn on May 7, 1945, they detonated nearly 100 tons of TNT spiked with plutonium. Damn. In the dark hours before this pretest, Manhattan Project doctors used battery clips to leash live rats to wires positioned around the mountain of explosives. The doctors were concerned the coming atom bomb test might create dangerous radioactive fallout. This last-minute experiment, poorly designed and executed, yielded no results. The rats to the blast were incinerated totally. So they did an experiment on rats. Like they was thinking they was really doing something. Real? While those further off were blown free of their wires and never recovered, one might think that researchers familiar with the complex and intricate physics used to engineer the atomic bomb would be able to conduct a less crass experiment. But the rat test, in all its callous ineptitude, was wholly characteristic of the American approach to radioactive fallout in the early days of nuclear weapons development. (laughs) When two months later the first atomic bomb was finally tested, it was done over the objections of doctors and the meteorologists. So you had people that, uh, that were objecting to the bomb being used. Doctors, meteorologists, read. Who warned the weather that morning was likely to spread fallout 
far and wide over New Mexico's civilian population. Over where? Civilian population. The whole state. Not just that area, y'all. The whole state. Read. Right in the middle of a period of thunderstorms, the meteorologist complained in his journal of the scheduled test. What son of a bitch could have done this? As the storm raged in the hours before the test, Italian physicist Enrico Fermi warned Oppenheimer there could be catastrophe. Oppenheimer took a break from reading the poetry of Baudelaire to relate to the military his version of the warning. The weather is whimsical. The decision was made to proceed with the test. The exploding gadget brought to a stretch of New Mexico desert the kind of heat that until that until then had existed only at the cores of stars. It was Damn. just before 5.30 a.m., and the sun was yet to rise. But for a few seconds, there was absolute light, otherworldly in its intensity, and visible for hundreds of miles. The shock wave broke windows. 180 miles west at a bar in Silver City. Damn. Liquefied sand rose with vaporized steel and the bomb's plutonium to form a mushroom cloud 38,000 feet high. Then came the wind, scattering the cloud, its ash coating coating the land as chunks of green glass formed when the sand cooled and fell from the sky. 80% of the bomb's plutonium core failed to fission, making that first bomb a dirty bomb. So some of it didn't blow up, and they called it a dirty bomb because the uh, particles of it was uh, still releasing to the atmosphere. By today's standards, and all of that radioactive material spread across New Mexico and beyond, by the end of the week, the fallout would ruin a batch of film at an Eastman Kodak factory in Indiana. Damn. So it went all the way to Indiana. The wind, having carried traces of the gadget more than 1,000 miles. All right, let's jump down a little bit. Yeah, read that. We might as well. The reactions of Manhattan Project observers at the Trinity site are well documented. Words haven't been invented to describe it. Physicist Val Fitch said of the enormous fireball. General Thomas Burrell said the awesome roar warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Oppenheimer recalled years later. I remembered a line from the Hindu scripture, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. See, they know who they are. They know whose spirit they got in them. Read. Physicist Kenneth Bainbridge said, now we are all sons of bitches. Less documented are the reactions of the many New Mexicans. That's the part I'm going to get to right here, y'all. Who lived near Trinity. Mm -hmm. They had no warning, no contact for the star-level explosion that shook their homes and startled them awake that morning, 
Worse, in the weeks after the test, they were never advised that their lands, crops, livestock, and water may have been irradiated. A 2010 report to the CDC used archives at Los Alamos National Laboratory to reexamine the extent to which the New Mexicans were unknowingly exposed to radioactive contamination from Trinity. Its findings revealed a shambolic and sometimes cynical effort to track the gadget's fallout that, that windy morning using crude and ineffective measures. Spotlights were deployed to try to follow the 230 tons of sand and ash falling from the mushroom cloud as it dispersed over southern New Mexico. Film film badges designed to detect and measure radiation have been sent to nearby post offices before the test, but because of the Manhattan Project's secret nature, there was little explanation on how the badges were meant to be used or why, and so they were deployed incorrectly or not at all. So you see how this was a poorly uh, designed test that they was running? But once again, y'all, this is who we're dealing with, and this is the spirit that they have in them. Let's go back to St. John chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse, uh, we're going to read verse 44 again, and then we're going to jump to Genesis. St. John chapter 8 mm-hmm. and verse 44. Yep. Ye are of your father, the devil. Now, <laughs> context clues, y'all, sound like. Because the spirit I opened up with says that there is a spirit in man that the most high gives inspiration. And we found out also that Satan gives inspiration to his spirits also. Now we're coming back in Christ saying, ye are your father, the devil. Who does this sound like he's talking about? Read it again. Ye are of your father, the devil. Mm-hmm. The deceiver. Read. And the lust of your father ye will do. Whose spirit does it sound like these people have in them? Read. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And we already got the lies that they told about the Japanese people unwillingly want to surrender. He says that they were they were very reluctant to surrender. But we read three, four articles that said that that's a damn lie. So whose spirit do they have in them? And we we just read about the millions of lives that was lost in this damn uh, bomb, even the experiment. And it's still affecting people to this day. And I talked about the people or read about the people in Los Alamos because, like I said, I'm more concerned with my people. But the Japanese people also are still suffering from that same radiation. They have a particular type of cancer that, that can only be attributed to what the atomic bomb did to them. That particular type of radiation, which our brothers and sisters over here in New Mexico have the exact same type of cancers. It's not a coincidence. I don't know if y'all remember, but they gave uh, Japanese refugees that were over here uh, under those bridges in San Francisco and those camps, they gave them reparations. 
and they gave them reparations just, I guess, for being Japanese and having to live in them conditions. But our people got nothing for the exposure that they, they got because of that damn bomb. Who, who else could be their father? It ain't the most high. Genesis 4 and 8. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. So here it is, his, him lying. So just to recap, now let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Matter of fact, before we get Genesis chapter 3, get Genesis chapter 4, read verse 1 again. Genesis 4 and 1. Mm-hmm. And Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Most High. So this is Eve when she conceived and gave birth to Adam's son Cain. Read. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So this is Abel popping up on the scene. Now these are Adam's kids, true enough. But jump over to Genesis chapter 3, and I want you to read verse 15. Genesis 3 and 15. Now we're going to go back in the chapter to break some stuff down. But I had to get this so we could show who these kids belong to spiritually. Read. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, matter of fact, read verse 14. Genesis 3 and 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent. So this is the Most High speaking to the serpent who's getting his punishment issued out to him. Now read verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. So this was the serpent's punishment. I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put hostility between you. And the woman, read. And between thy seed and her seed. And I'm going to put enmity or hostility between your son and her son. Your spiritual son and her son. Two different spirits. Those spirits being Cain and Abel. Cain had the spirit of who in him? His daddy, the devil, Satan. Abel had the spirit of who in him? The Most High, his heavenly father. I hope y'all seeing this. Read this again, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It was going to be hostility between the two. So this was prophesied. This is why Cain ends up killing Abel by the time you get to Genesis chapter 4, because that spirit was already there. The spirit of hostility was already there. Because Cain is of his daddy, the devil, Satan. That's his spiritual father, even though his biological father was Adam. Now, let's get some characteristics of Cain through his father. Now, let's jump to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to read verse 1. Genesis 3 and 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he said unto the woman, Yay. Now, God. hold on. Let's clear this up. 
Because a lot of people read Genesis, and this is not a, a Genesis 3 breakdown, but I have to get this so I can continue the class so I won't lose nobody. The Most High speaks this way. Let's get Hosea chapter 12, verse 10. So the Bible's written three ways, y'all. The first, the first way the Bible is written is historically. It's a history book. The second way the Bible is written is prophetically. It tells you things that are going to happen, and they happen. The third way the Bible is written is symbolically. The Bible uses a lot of symbolism, a lot of allegory, or what the Bible says, similitudes. Who's it? Whoever's got to read it. Hosea 12 and 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions. The Most High said, I spoke by the prophets, and I send visions also. This is how the Most High would speak to the prophets, through a vision, through a dream. Read. And use similitudes. And when the Most High sends his visions, his dreams, he uses what? Similitudes. Similitudes. Let's look up the word similitudes. You got it? Similitude. A visible likeness. A what? Visible likeness. So a similitude is a visible likeness. Not a, I ain't going to blow it. It says what? A visible likeness. A visible likeness. Read. An imaginative comparison. A, a imaginative comparison. Not the thing itself, but an imaginary comparison. What else? A correspondence in kind or quality, a point of comparison. A point of comparison. Uh, let me say I had a good one. Counterpart or double. I've got a person or thing that is like or the match or counterpart of another. This is uh, a liking or comparison in the form of a parable or allegory. So when we read Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, let's go back now. Genesis 3 and 1. I'm sorry. Yeah, read that. Read that. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. Now it says serpent. A lot of people say that this is the snake. But remember, y'all, this is allegory. This is a similitude because this is how the Most High speaks to us. And similar to, give me Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16. Well, we got to read it. Deuteronomy 4, 16. Come. Quickly, please. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure. The what? Similitude of any figure. The similitude of any figure. He's talking about graven, graven images. So you make an image that looks like a bird or represents a bird. You make an image that looks like a fish or represents a fish. Is that it? The likeness of male or female. The likeness of something. That's what a similitude is. Give me Psalms 106 and verse 20. And then give me Hosea 12 and 10 again. Psalms 106 and verse 20. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox. Into the what? Similitude of an ox. It says we changed our glory 
into the similitude of an ox. Now we change it into an ox, but something like an ox, not the exact same thing. I hope y'all are seeing this. The similitudes, man, and we use these similitudes very loosely today, man. We'll say stuff like what? Drop it like it's hot. What does that mean? Does it mean that it's hot? No, it don't mean that it's hot. But if you holding something that's hot, you're going to what? You're going to drop it out your hands because it's too damn hot for you to hold. These are the similitudes that we use very loosely. Or we say, oh, man, it's, uh, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Does it mean that it's actually cats and dogs that are outside falling from the sky? No, it doesn't. But that's the similitude that we use to say what, man? It's raining hard as hell out there. These are some of the similitudes that we use. Somebody might say, man, it's chilly outside. Does this mean I go give me a bowl with some Fritos in it and make Frito pie? No, these are some of the similitudes that we use this day and age that we can understand. But this is how the Most High speaks. This is how he's always spoke to us. This is one of the ways that the Bible is written in similitudes. Hosea 12 and uh, 10 again. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. This is how the Most High speaks to the prophets by the ministry or the service of the prophets. He spoke to them in similitudes. The Bible's written in similitudes. So now that we've got that understanding, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 and get some characteristics of Cain's spiritual daddy, <laughs> Satan, the devil. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The who? Any beast of the field. The what was? The serpent. The serpent. Let's look up the definition for serpent. I told y'all we're going to be in the dictionary a lot. Everybody got it? Yes. Uh, figuratively. It's, it's what? Figuratively. It's figuratively. I mean, it's not actual. You know, like similar to something that's like it, but not the exact same thing. What else? A subtle or malicious person. A what? Subtle or malicious person. A subtle or malicious person. Y'all see this, right? Now, to be fair, read the top two definitions that you got for serpent. Uh, an animal of the order of serpent. Uh, so an, an animal in the serpent family, in the reptile family. What else? Of the class of amphibia. Mm-hmm. Serpents are amphibious animals, breathing through the mouth of by means of lungs only. What else? Can we continue? It should have snake. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah. Okay. You got it? What does it say? A noxious creature that creeps, hisses, or stings, or a snake. Or a snake, right. And that's the first thing we read, serpent here in Genesis, a snake. This is how they came up with that damn uh, picture of the damn, of a snake and a woman and a man and an apple and all this other crazy nonsense. Because that's the first thing people think of when they see the word serpent. But we're finding out, according to the dictionary, that a serpent is nothing more than a treacherous person. Now let's look up the definition for treacherous. Uh, 
because some people might not know what that means. We're going to dumb this all the way down. Well, we got it. Guilty of or involving betrayal or deception. Ooh, I love it. Guilty of or involving what? Betrayal or deception. Betrayal or deception. So we're finding out. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and 1 again. Now the serpent was my <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we use these terms very loosely. The brother Gabor at the water eye just sent it in. Snake in the grass. What does it mean when we say, man, you a snake in the grass? That you want to betray me. <laughs> you are a treacherous person. Read on in Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. So it says that this serpent or this treacherous person was more subtle than any beast of the field, meaning subtle means sly, slick, cunning. But it says that he was more subtle than any beast. So we find out that this serpent is also being referred to as a what? As a damn beast. Now, let's get Ecclesiastes 3 and 18. And somebody else look me up the definition for beast. Ecclesiastes 3 and 18. Yep. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men. The estate of who? The sons of men. He's talking about men, people, human beings. This is David. He said this. I'm sorry, this is Solomon. He said this about mankind. Read. That God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. That the Most High might show man that he could be a what? A beast. A damn beast. When we say this, what what are we saying, man? If somebody's out of control, if they're a beast. Now give me uh who's got the definition? You find the definition? While she's looking for that, yeah. give me Psalm seventy three and verse twenty one. Let's, let's get the scripture first, then we're gonna go back. So I'm, and I, and I, the reason I'm going Bible and uh, dictionary is so we can see how the terms is, are used interchangeably in the Bible, how the Bible speaks. 73 and 21. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. Now this is David speaking. Read. So foolish was I and ignorant. He said, David said he was foolish and ignorant. Read. I was as a beast before thee. He said he was a what? A beast. Thee. What's the characteristics of a beast? Foolish. To, to be what? Foolish. Foolish. I'm doing stuff that fools would do. I'm doing stuff that don't make no damn sense. I have no laws. I have no morals. I have no rules. The water I read. Nevertheless. No, he said. The second. So foolish. Foolish and what? The second characteristic. Ignorant. Ignorant means uh, unlearned or untaught. This is what makes a man a beast. They don't know no damn better. Now, you got the definition? A beast? Mm Mm-hmm. A four-footed mammal, as distinguished from a human being, a lower vertebrate, 
Now, to be honest, we read all the definitions. What's the first one? A four-footed mammal as distinguished from a human being, a lower vertebrate and invertebrate. So a, a mammal that's distinguished from a human being. What else? A lower animal as distinguished from a human being, an animal as distinguished from a plant, an animal under human control. All right, I think we got all that. Now let's get the, the other one. A contemptible person. A what? Contemptible person. What is a beast? A contemptible person. A beast can be a person, y'all. A contemptible person. I hope y'all see this. Now let's get Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3. So we're going to read verse 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 17. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3. And four great beasts came up from the sea. So Daniel said, man, and this is the vision that he had, his dream. He said, four great beasts came up from the sea. Now, we already established through the definition of other scriptures that we got that Dave's talking about people here. He ain't talking about no damn animals. So he said, four great beasts came up from the sea. Now, jump up to verse, uh, jump over to verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. <laughs> so Daniel said that these beasts which are four or what? Are four kings. They four kings. This is another example of how the Bible uses allegory, y'all. I hope y'all getting this. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. So this treacherous person was more subtle than this uh, than any other person that didn't have any morals that was in the what in the field in the of the field uh give me matthew 13 verse 38 real quick quickly 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 so we can break down what the field is 13 and 38 yep the field is the world the what the field is the world so the field is the world so this beast or this serpent was more subtle than any other, or this treacherous person was more cunning than any other moralist person that was in the world at this particular time. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Mm-hmm. And he said unto the woman, yeah, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's asking her a question. Did God, did Joe God say, your heavenly father say that ye cannot eat of uh, every tree of the garden? Now, please look up the definitions for eat for me, please. The archive, you get Ezekiel chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 1. Eat. <clears throat> Besides the obvious. No, I want you to read those two. Okay. Eat. Put food into the mouth and chew and swallow it. Right, because we read this like, oh yeah, they ate something. They put it in their mouth. They swallowed it. This is where they get to get the nonsense about an apple, because you got the word tree and eat in the same sentence, and our minds just automatically gravitates to what comes off a tree, fruit. The first fruit we 
think of be a damn apple. It's like you want um, Family Feud. <laughs> uh, the survey out of a thousand people, these people said, boom, number one answer was this, apple. <laughs> Not the case. But this is where our mind goes. Read on. Consume. It means to what? To consume. It means to consume something. You can consume a lot more than just food. Hell, you can consume films if you're around them too long. What else? Devour, ingest, partake of. It means to what? Partake of. This is the definition I want. It means to partake in something. To eat means to partake. I took some of that. I got Yeah, I got some of that. That's what it means. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 and read it again. Verse 1. Genesis 3 and 1. I'm sorry. I told you to get Ezekiel 3 and 1. There you go. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. He said to eat what you find. Now, this was Ezekiel, the, the most the most high speaking to Ezekiel. He told him to eat what he found. We're going to find out what it was he ate. Read. Eat this roll. He, he said eat what? This roll. A roll is talking about a scroll because that what, that's what we kept scriptures on back then. A scroll. I mean, you Roll that scroll up. It's a what? It's a roll. It's a roll. Eat the roll I just gave you. Does it mean Ezekiel was eating paper? <laughs> he was just eating paper like the kids were watching the other night. That lady was eating down toilet paper. Does it mean Ezekiel was eating a roll? No, it means he partook in it. He consumed it. Read it again. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, We're going to read the verse 4. Cause thy belly to eat. Cause your belly to eat. Partake of this. Read. And fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Digest it. Settle it in your mind. <laughs> Read. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. He partook of it, and he found a man. It's sweet. It's beneficial. Read. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. But I thought he just gave them something to eat, though. Well, why is he saying speak with my words? Yeah, he did give him something to eat. He gave him what? What we, what we loosely refer to as what? Food for thought. <laughs> he gave him his word. This was the role that he ate, that he partook in. Is that it? That's it. Before. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Read it again. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath the Most High said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, if Of every tree of the garden. You cannot partake of every tree that's here. You can't partake of every doctrine that's here. Well, people say, well, Tuss probably don't say that. What about the tree? Let's get a tree and I'm going to bring it home. Give me Psalms chapter 1 and verse 1. 
It's not talking about food. It ain't talking about animals. I hope we got all this nonsense, these fairy tales that you learn in Bible study out your head. Psalm 1 and 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the who? The man. See, see, it's talking about a man, y'all. Read. Nor standeth in the way of sinners, Mm -hmm. nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Mm-hmm. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the, the law of the Most High, the instructions of the Most High, the Spirit of the Most High. Read. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Mm-hmm. And he shall be like a tree. This man's going to be like a what? A tree. The man's going to be like a what? Tree. This man's going to be like a tree. Read. Planted by the rivers of water. If you plant a tree by some water, it's going to grow. It's really going to grow good. It's going to have all the nourishment from the seaweed in the ocean, from the water, from the fish poop. It's going to have that fertilizer. And, you know, trees' roots run really deep. Well, it's it's, uh, comparing this tree to a man. I hope you all seeing this. So going back to Genesis chapter 3, matter of fact, before we do that, uh, yes, keep reading. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water mm-hmm. that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. That for what? His fruit in his season. So can a man have fruit? <laughs> yes, a man can have fruit like a tree. When, 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 when we uh, procreate and drop our seed in, inside a woman and she gives birth, we call we call that our seed or our fruit. These are terms we use real loosely, y'all. This is allegory. But a man can be a tree. Now give me Matthew 7 and 18. I'm sorry, y'all. I cannot compose. I'm going to have to take a quick break, y'all. Hold on for a second.
uh, Matthew. Give me that. I'm back, y'all. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 18. Mm-hmm. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. So this is Christ speaking. Read. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Uh-huh. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I'm sorry. Read up. Verse 17. Uh, no, because I believe he, he begins it off. It says, beware of false prophets, right? Mm-hmm. Matthew 7 and 15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. So this is the subject matter. He's talking about false prophets. Talking about men, y'all. Now jump down to verse uh, 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. So the, the these are men that he was comparing them to what? Trees. Trees. And he's talking about their fruit, meaning their works. And he goes into it. Now give me uh, Mark chapter 8 and verse 24. Right, Ock, I'm glad you brought that up. We use that term loosely also. We say that the apple don't fall <laughs> Fall far from the tree. <laughs> what does that mean? You your daddy's son. Tell us that mean. Mark eight twenty four. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. I see men as trees walking. So can a man be a tree? Yes. I hope y'all see the allegory that's being used. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter three and Let's bring it home. That's the 92nd mark. I'm obviously not going to finish this class, y'all. My bad. We were in verse 2. Do you want 2 or do you want 1 again? Uh, I want the end of... Matter of fact, read 1 and 2. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field mm-hmm. which the Lord God had made. Mm-hmm. And he said unto the woman, Yeah, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? No, he asked her a question. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. What knowledge can you get from a tree, y'all? None, besides what type of fruit does the tree is bearing. So this is not what it's talking about. We found out that men or referred to as trees in the Bible. You find me the one that says trees of righteousness? That was uh, Isaiah 51 and 3. Find that real quick. But what I want to bring out here is that the most had already given Adam and Eve the doctrine that they were supposed to follow, the knowledge that they were supposed to But Adam, I'm sorry, Eve is being swayed here by a man uh, of low morals, also referred to as a beast or a serpent or a tree, he was trying to offer her some knowledge that was not what the Most High gave us in the first place. And this is known as idolatry. So this is why Adam and Eve fell. You got this in uh, Isaiah? To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, mm-hmm. the oil of joy for mourning, mm-hmm. the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, mm-hmm. that they might be called trees of righteousness. Y'all see this, right? Once again, the allegory of a man being a tree. 
So this is what was going on. Um, I kind of hate to uh, stop right here. This is a good stopping place. Uh, when I come back next week, uh, Lord willing, man, I'll finish this class and go into more of um, the spirit of of Satan and his seeds, his children, and uh, devil a little bit more and show in the Bible how the uh, atomic bomb that was that was detonated on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was prophesied, y'all. So y'all, uh, that's it. I hope everybody got some edification from the show. Uh, I hope I didn't lose anybody. I know we did a lot of reading. There was a point I wanted to get to, and wanted to bring out. But if you got any questions, man, concerning this topic or any other biblical topic, please hit me up at three one four four eight two ninety one ten. Or either hit Mashaba up, man, with your questions, and we will uh, cover those on Blog Talk. So uh, that's it for the evening, y'all. Um, y'all got anything I want to say or add? The Water Mashaba for hooking up the broadcast. The Water, the bar, man, for your comments, um, your help, brother. I appreciate it. And the Water for everybody tuning in to uh, tonight's show, man. And uh, with that, y'all, we're going to say shalom. Shalom.